Well, hello and welcome. This is Ron Cohen, tax partner at the firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company. And this is our tax podcast update. It is Tuesday, April 6th at 10 a.m. California time. And as always, uh, things are just changing so fast. It's too much change. It's too much, especially in the middle of the tax. We're in the middle of doing tax returns and uh, things related to those returns are changing almost daily. And that's that's really unfortunate. Okay, but in today's show, uh, the IRS gave a clarification that IRA contributions are also extended to May 17th for individuals, which, you know, which is the individual tax deadline this year extended from April 15th. Oh, just a few minutes ago, read an article put out on April 1st by the uh, Journal of Accountancy, uh, and we'll talk about it, that Congress is asking the Internal Revenue Service to also move the deadline for your 2021, that's the current year, first quarter estimated tax payment to May 17th, as opposed to what the IRS said was, no, those first quarter estimates are still due April 15th. Uh, so they're trying to get those in conformity on the same date, which makes perfect sense. We'll talk more about that in a bit. A uh, key senator says that the Democrats don't have the votes to increase the corporate tax rate to 28%. A bit more on that. California's AB 80 is still unresolved, which is about deducting expenses paid for with PPP loan proceeds. And all I can say is that goes into the shame, shame, shame department. That's such an important issue for returns that are being done every day now getting uh, is not, not clarified. Uh, number five here is just ask the question, is the U.S. government in default? I think it might be. We got to ask around without getting into uh, too many specific cases. Uh, we're aware of a number of situations that the IRS is not paying refund claims under the old COVID bill from back in March. And uh, to me, that's a technical default, default, default. So continuing on, there's, and I'm putting this at the end of the podcast because some of you may want to drop off if you haven't already. We're going to talk about some of the new proposals by Senator Wyden on the new international tax uh, framework things they want to tweak to the Trump administration uh, issues. I really enjoy and work a lot in the international area, but it is rocket science. So we'll leave, leave that to the end in case you want to drop off and or, or go to sleep. Um, caveats and a commercial. Okay, so as always, take no reliance on anything you hear on this podcast. We consider it intellectual entertainment. And if you want to rely on anything, you know, you have to come become a, a client to the firm, we got to sign an engagement letter, give us all the documents, chat with us, make sure we understand any, everything. We come back with a formal recommendation. Uh, so just be careful before you sign any return or send any document to the uh, Internal Revenue Service or any state tax authority, making sure you know for sure what the proper tax treatment is. Plagiarism is is okay here. We're not writing any novels. We uh, take from things on the internet where people write beautiful articles trying to get famous, and they're uh, referring to certain cases and situations. It's it's all good. We're all just after trying to get the least amount of tax for our clients. 
no politics. Try to avoid that. You can listen to politics on various podcasts all day and night here. Although we do have to mention politics where it is directly related to the creation of uh, new tax laws. Uh, we here at the firm, Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company, we do about 1,400 tax returns. We do planning. We do um, home office work for very wealthy individuals who need that kind of support. Uh, lastly, I'm no cheerleader for the tax law. I think it's intrusive. It's uh, invades your privacy. It's far too complex. The Internal Revenue Service can't even figure it out most of the time. But we always have to get an A-plus on tax returns. We have to respect the law that it, as it is and always get an A-plus, not an A-minus, not a B, not a C. Always try to do things perfectly and as best you can in this terribly over-complex situation. Okay, I'm uh, at the, again, Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company. We're here in beautiful downtown Fremont, California, about 12 miles north of San Jose and about 35 miles south of San Francisco. We're at 510-797-8661. I'm at extension 237. Our website is www.groco.com. Don't worry if you didn't get any of that. It's all in the show notes. And uh, we'll just continue on here. Okay, thank you. First issue about the deadline for IRA deductions. Now, in each year, for as long as I can remember, since the creation of uh, individual retirement accounts, and I'm old enough to remember when that happened, <laughs> the, um, you, you can actually do a look back. You can wait after the end of the year, December 31 of the prior year, and make an IRA contribution related to that year, all the way up to the due date of the return, April 15th, in most years. <laughs> and the great thing of that was, in many cases, for based on income limitations, that IRA contribution was deductible. So it's deductible against your prior year income, even though you're making the contribution in the subsequent year. Well, that's a pretty nice trick. Now, there's all kinds of income limitations uh, uh, for uh, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, SEP, SEP IRAs. Uh, you just got to make sure you know all those rules and, and how much you can put in. Sometimes if you're contributing to a pension plan, you need to get a uh, actuary to sign off and do a bunch of paperwork. But assuming you know all the rules uh, for the simple individual retirement arrangements, IRAs, assume your income and you otherwise qualify. There's rules about being covered at a, with a 401k or some other plan at work can make your IRA contribution non-deductible. Uh, there's a great uh, little grid on irs.gov where you can uh, find out all the rules, assuming you would otherwise be allowed to deduct that IRA contribution you had until April 15th, most years. And the IRS clarified today, and we're attaching an article from the tax practice advisor, put a link in there, uh, where you, they have clarified, okay, we extended the April 15th deadline, and uh, that applies also for your IRA contributions. You can make those up to May 17th. Now, a lot of our clients on the higher end of the income scale, they'll put in 6,000, 6,500, there's various limits based on your age, into an IRA, even if it's non-deductible. Why would they do that? It's because that money can sit there for 20, 30 years accumulating 
income uh, tax-free, it's only taxed when you take it out in retirement. So even for the tax deferral feature, even if you don't get a deduction because your income is otherwise too high or you're covered by a plan at work in certain circumstances, uh, they still want to put it in. And that due date, again, is uh, now May 17th for the 2020 tax return. So that's good that they clarified it. Okay, moving on then. Um, last week, we talked at length about the Biden administration's um, proposal to increase the corporate tax rate to 28%. Now, recall currently under the, uh, the 2017 Tax Act, that rate went down to 21% flat rate, flat rate. First dollar to the billionth dollar, all taxed at 21% of taxable income, taxable income, not gross income. And so um, that, that was a dramatic change because the top rate for corporate tax used to be 35%. So I've done the math, 35% compared to 21%. That is a 40% reduction in the federal tax. That's quite amazing. Well, that all happened uh, starting in the 2018 tax year and as, uh, as proposed while on the campaign trail and now as president, President Biden, said, I'm going to raise it. And so uh, last week, they put the first uh, framework through a White House uh, press release of uh, bringing it back up to 28%. And uh, so that's been percolating around. There's drafts. Uh, the, 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 the guys who write these rules in detail, you know, it goes to the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate fin Finance Committee and the junior lawyers there write these thousand page drafts, which then go to what's called markup, where uh, there's a committee meeting and in the committee, they slice and dice and cut and change and amend, trying to get a compromise and get to a final bill. Well, even before we've gotten to a markup meeting, Senator Joe Manchin, who <laughs> may be arguably, arguably the most powerful man in the U.S. government, he can't launch nuclear missiles, but because of the basically 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate, and he is a Democrat who sometimes has more Republican leanings. I'm just saying the facts there. No one would dispute that. Uh, he's from um, uh, West Virginia. Uh, and so I'll just read the quote here. Senator Joe Manchin just said Democrats do not have the votes to pass the American Jobs Plan in the U.S. Senate. Manchin says he knows of six or seven Democrats, meaning senators, who agree hiking the corporate tax rate to 28% would put the country's competitiveness, competitiveness at risk. And as we noted here last week, the Chinese uh, corporate tax rate in China uh, is 25%. So again, you have to take into account not just the rate, but the tax base, because if certain deductions and exclusions and credits are allowed, uh, you have to, you, you could end up having a higher rate in one country, but actually having a lower tax effective cost in terms of the amount of money they actually have to write a check for, because while the rate is higher, so many deductions or exclusions or credits are allowed that their effective tax rate is actually lower than a country with a higher, with a lower tax rate, but on a higher base. So but assuming you assume the tax base is similar, and I assure you it is not, the countries compute 
taxes, uh, the tax base different all over the world. But assuming they're relatively the same, if China has a corporate tax rate at 25 and we have a corporate tax rate at 28, well, that's three points of disadvantage. And um, I will hold my <laughs> further comments as they may get too political. But uh, Senator Manchin has uh, said that um, he has talked to his buddies in the Senate. and They don't have the votes by six or seven, which is very, very significant. Uh, if Manchin's vote count is accurate, it indicates Biden may have a tough time raising corporate taxes above the 25% rate communist China charges American businesses. Uh, the United States currently current corporate tax rate set by President Trump and the Congress stands at 21%. This is off of Breitbart News. So again, I admit it may be a little bit slanted in the way they report things. Uh, Trump has voiced opposition to Biden's radical uh, and the largest tax hike in American history as a massive giveaway to China. So, okay, you can read the article. We'll put in the the link there. Again, I don't want to go too far afield into uh, quoting uh, political aspects of it. But um, it is an important point to say there's a massive proposal uh, to increase the corporate tax rate. And at least in the key senator's view, they may not have the votes, which certainly will come into play as it goes to committee, goes to markup, comes to the floor, uh, up and down, back and forth. Um, and that all could change tomorrow. That all could change tomorrow. So you decide what's right or wrong, but uh, that is the news I wanted to report on that. Now, uh, from the shame, shame, shame department here, California AB 80, Assembly Bill 80, is still unresolved. So as we talked about in some prior weeks, this is a real dilemma, right? Tax returns for 2020 for businesses are being completed right now, every day, week by week, hundreds of thousands, I, I assume, throughout the state. And there is a question, an unresolved question, about the deductibility of expenses paid with PPP loans. So the federal government clarified uh, in the, the most recent COVID bill that if you borrow money that's tax-free because it's, a, it's a borrowed, it's going to be forgiven. The amount that's forgiven is not taxable. So you basically got the money for free, which is great, which is what Congress intended. And you use that money to pay normally deductible items like salaries and wages and rents and utilities. The first view of the United States Treasury Department was that those items should not be deductible because if you got the, mat, the cash for free, not from customers, but from a forgivable loan, you shouldn't be able to deduct the related expenses. Long time uh, tax theory that's been around for decades, uh, which makes a lot of sense under what they call the matching principle. Tax-free money shouldn't be able to generate you a deductible expense and a very pragmatic reason. Otherwise, now the federal government has subsidized the business twice, once when the money was given, and again, when they get a tax deduction for the uh, item that is paid with funds that were not taxable. But that theory did not win the day on uh, most recent uh, COVID bills. They said, no, that's exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to give you a double benefit. And so all those items are expenses. So then California, uh, there's always an issue of conformity here in the great state of California, where um, uh, we basically rewrite the entire tax code uh, under uh, in California for as, as opposed to having what they call 
a piggyback state where our rules are simply the federal rules with a small adjustment here, there, and a different rate. Well, we don't have a piggyback state. We have a state where, no, we'll come up with our own rules on many, many items. So there's differences. And differences are very, very difficult, hard to track, uh, makes massive tax returns uh, with lots of comp complexity. And it appeared that this deductibility of items paid with forgivable PPP fund loans was going to be another non-conforming difference. Well, of course, um, uh, many folks that we know got on the phone and called Governor Newsom and said, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You can't be serious. And so a bill came up through uh, the California legislature to say, well, if uh, you have uh, uh, less than $150,000 of sales, I believe, don't hold me that might be sales, it might be the amount of the loan, um, that your, your expenses would be deductible. But then they waited so long to, to move on that bill that uh, when the, final, the last COVID bill went through, there was a provision that since the states are now getting so much in subsidies, that's a matter of opinion, whether you think it's high or low, but they're getting many subsidies here in California. I think it's hundreds of billions of dollars for one reason or another. The one of the provisions is if you're going to take that money state, you now can't raise, you cannot reduce taxes uh, for the time being, because otherwise you're just getting a subsidy from federal government and cycling it out to the taxpayers. We meant you to take that money and use it for COVID relief, tracing, tracking, uh, shore up your pensions, uh, do whatever else you need to do to help, but not to cycle the money back out to the taxpayers as a rebate. So now that they have to pass in Sacramento this bill to make the PPP uh, items paid with the PPP loans deductible, it's believed legally that that's actually a tax reduction. Can you believe it? Because they waited too long to conform. They should have passed the bill the next day, in my humble opinion, saying, oh, we conform to this. And there would have been no problem. But they waited. The new law was passed in the federal government. Now they have to get uh, permission from the Department of Treasury that the, uh, uh, the change here in California is not a tax reduction to the people. And here's my personal view. This is taking a while. This hasn't happened fast, which means there's a problem. That means they're having a problem. You know, this is a big state issue. It went to the Department of Treasury. You would think in a week or two, they'd get their bright minds together and give California ruling, but they haven't. And I think the longer this goes on, the more it means that the Treasury Department's having legal problems, figure, you know, giving permission for California to enact AB 80. And again, the frustration is every day, CPAs and enrolled agents and other preparers and people who do their own returns, they're filing these returns every day. Are these items deductible for California? Or is there a difference where they're deductible for federal, but they're not deductible for state? Terrible, terrible, terrible tax administration. Shame, 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 shame. Okay, so uh, just prior to me getting online here, there was um, an article on April 1st there is a proposal to extend the first quarter estimates. Now, I'll just speak a little bit about um, the, the issue here in that as a tax practitioner, someone who does returns, it's really hard to figure out what your first quarter estimate should be until you finish the return for the prior year. 
right? Uh, it finished the term for the prior year because some of the penalty provisions rely on what was your taxes last year. So in order to tell the client what is their appropriate first quarter estimate, you want to make sure they won't be subject to any penalties, but you can't figure out that because you haven't finished last year's return or even done the extension yet. So we haven't done the extension because now the due date's off to May 17th, but the IRS said, no, you got to do your first quarter estimate on April 15th. So you're shooting in the blind, right? You're, you're just trying to work through this as a 3D chess. And um, so thankfully, uh, number, our, our group, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and all kinds of other groups have called their senators and Congress once again has uh, written a letter to the IRS commissioner, Charles Reddick. On Wednesday, uh, they, they wrote a, a letter saying, please come back to the land of common sense. And if you have extended the tax turn deadline, deadline to May 17th, make the first quarter estimate also due on May 17th. So simple, so logical, so reasonable, but uh, we're in COVID times and everyone's kind of making it up as they go along. So I'll just read, this is just a few short paragraphs. Again, uh, credit to the Journal of Accountancy. We'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, a letter to the IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick on Wednesday, a diverse bipartisan, that's always good, both parties, bipartisan group of 60 members of Congress urged the IRS to extend the deadline for first quarter 2021 federal estimated tax payments to May 17th. Now, let me back out a minute and say, look, if you have your taxes paid through withholding, comes out of your pay every two weeks or every month, however you get paid, you pay in all your taxes, you always get a refund, uh, you haven't done anything special in 2021 that would require you to make an estimated tax payment, everything I'm saying here, you don't care. You don't care at all. You pay your taxes through withholding. You're a happy camper. The government's happy with you. But there are a large number of people, including a number of our clients, who uh, have to pay in their estimates four times a year, April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. Nobody withholds on their income, their partners and partnerships, their S-corporation shareholders that aren't taking uh, too much salary. There's all kinds of issues. There's all kinds of... They're, they're, they, get all their income from dividends and interest and stock trading, they have to pay their estimated tax payments. So just making that distinction for a vast majority of you out there, you may not care one bit because you're paying your taxes through withholding and you don't make estimated tax payments. So this is irrelevant, but for others, it's very important. So the estimated tax deadline has been issued, uh, has been an issue since the IRS proposed the tax filing and payment deadline for individuals to May 17th has extended it to May 17th, but did not move the April 15th estimated tax deadline to May 17th for the 2021 taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, the members of Congress pointed to several pandemic related issues that are causing hardship for individuals and small businesses, state and local government restrictions, mandated closures and changes in people's behavior because of pandemic-related health guidelines. The letter notes that small businesses have seen revenue declines and losses of access to markets, and in many cases have had to lay off employees to avoid bankruptcy, bankruptcy, all of which can affect tax liabilities 
and therefore making estimating, estimated tax payments and estimating how much they should be is a difficult exercise. I completely agree. I completely agree. You have to do a little make-believe return for the first quarter to figure out how much you should pay in, in, in many cases. To solve these problems, the members of Congress urged the IRS commissioner to use his emergency authority to extend the first quarter estimated tax payment deadline to May 17, 2021. The letter echoes statements by the AICPA, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and the National Association of Enrolled Agents in a recent letter to the IRS and Treasury in which the organizations requested a postponement until May. Not for our benefit, it's just because doing the work is crazy if the two deadlines don't line up. Okay, uh, the AICPA will continue to advocate blah, 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 blah. So there you go. So um, hopefully they will do what they should have done a month ago and say not only the original due date for the return, but the first quarter estimate for the current year are delayed until May 17th. We'll see. We'll see as of this moment. No, that first quarter estimate is due on April 15th. First quarter estimate for 2021. And uh, as last I heard, uh, California has conformed to that rule. I just read this morning, Arizona also extended its due date till May 17th for the return. Uh, Arizona is famous for keeping its estimated tax due date, regardless of the return due date. So, okay, enough about that. Uh, but for those of you, it affects, it's a really, really, really big deal. All right, moving on here. I want to reflect a bit about the US government and I want to ponder uh, without getting into any specifics, whether the US government is already in financial default. And please ask around, please give me a call if you have circumstances that you're aware of because here's the situation is that under the COVID bill back in March, uh, last March, uh, there were a number of uh, refund claims that taxpayers could make to get refunds based on a change in the net operating loss rules, way too much than I could go into here. So all of us ran around and we filed those refund claims and we got them in. And usually, uh, used to be an amended return, we get processed in 30, 60 days, you get your check. Well, then things slowed down and now the rule of thumb is you won't hear from them for four months. Well, now on a lot of these claims, we're at eight, nine, 10 months without even contact from the IRS. In some cases where there is huge amounts of money, huge, breathtaking amounts of money that is owed to the taxpayer, because those taxpayers are, are, are motivated and I will very quickly review uh, uh, what you do in that case. So you call three times, try to get through on the hotline, you'll fail. Uh, maybe you'll get through. I shouldn't be so crass, but, uh, um, uh, but you won't find out anything rele relevant. Uh, it's hard for them to get information. They look up on the computer, on their screen. And if it's in process, quote unquote, it's in process, which is the black hole that it's somewhere in some IRS service center your return is just uh, percolating around or more likely sitting on someone's desk going nowhere. Well, uh, so that's frustrating, especially if you're waiting for a large legally requested proper appropriate refund check for prior year applying prior year losses, uh, 
prior losses to uh, prior year income. Again, won't get into the whole discussion of how net operating losses work, but you're waiting for a great big check, right? And so you, again, you call, you get nowhere. Then you call the tax advocate department of the IRS and they're pretty good. They'll get back to you in a day or two and they'll get back to you and say, it's in process. Well, I already knew that. You told me it was in process when I didn't need the tax advocate department to tell me it's in process. You know, so so give me, okay, let's be rational, right? It's in process. When will it not be in process anymore? What can I expect? Is there a timeline? We don't know because of COVID. This is the answer people get. We don't know because of COVID. Everything's backed up. We don't know. We can't even give you a projection of when we'll move on that. On something the IRS should have, by law, processed in, I think, 60 days, at least four months, which they said it takes them more time, and you're calling in month nine or 10, right? And you can't get any relevant information. So what do you do? Well, uh, one of the suggestions you file a form 843, which is a special claim form. Just say, just a general form. You go and say, look, you got our amended return. Here's a copy of it. Uh, it's a big number and uh, we'd like a check and we're making a special claim. Just try to get the, the system moving, get it off somebody's desk sitting there in, uh, in Ogden, Utah, let's say, and uh, try to get it to the front of the line, right? Not because you want to take on, want to bump anybody else, but because you're already at month nine since filing, right? You should have had the money maybe after four months. So that does you no good because what happens is the uh, claim form 843, <laughs> it starts its own process uh, where they won't even open the envelope for three months, right? And then you'll get a nice letter saying, hey, thank you for 843. We're going to read it. We'll get back to you in 45 days. Problem is you'll get five, five copies of the, after the first 45 days, you'll get another letter saying 45 days. Then you'll get another letter saying 45 days. So the Form 843 claim, which is supposed to get the system going, uh, is on its own route to oblivion. <laughs> so what do you do? So I'll tell you what you do. You call your congressman, right? That's uh, one of the things that your congressional office or your senator uh, is supposed to do. This is They have a liaison department with the IRS. And you spell out to them why you've done these 12 things, five phone calls, keep copies of everything. Note down every date, every phone call, every discussion. Keep, uh, send everything certified mail, right? Keep, keep You're building this file, this huge file, always getting ready like you're getting ready to go to court. And you give a copy to your congressman. You say, dear congressman, can, can you call the IRS liaison? There is one that, that works at the House of Representatives and say, what are you doing to my taxpayer, right? He, he did everything he was supposed to do. Um, this is why congressmen are there to try to help out uh, for their their constituents. And you called your congressman. He got nowhere. He got stonewalled. I will say, uh, in a Ron Cohen kind of uh, kind of a personal opinion, that when the government stops paying duly filed, appropriately filed, uh, uh, absolutely legal authorized by Congress on the right forms at the right time, addressed to the right place, certified mail, refund claims, and they don't pay them, that is a federal default. That is just as bad as not paying Social Security. It's just as bad as not paying a Treasury bond. 
it is a default. And I would like you to call me if you're having a similar situation out there, because I was thinking about putting together some kind of class action, not filing a lawsuit, but at least on a, on a political level, going to the IRS and say, look, um, you're not paying the money out. You filed the forms, followed your law, got to pay the money out. And uh, that is, I will leave it at that because the consequences of saying the federal government may be in default and so forth are, 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 are shocking. And um, little Ron Cohen here in Fremont, California, uh, it's not going to say much more than that, but it's happening, ladies and gentlemen, it's happening. Okay, so uh, many of you may want to drop off here uh, because I'm now going to delve into some true rocket science under some proposals for the international tax framework. Going forward here, uh, Senator Wyden, who's up uh, from up the road here in, in, in Oregon, uh, when I say up the road, 13, 14 hours of driving, <laughs> but Senator Wyden and uh, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio and Mark Warner of Virginia appear to be in charge of pushing through the Biden administration's international tax uh, programs. And so they've laid out several items. I, I love international tax. We do a good bit of it, uh, but you really have to switch your brain into a different gear and to be familiar with these terms. So a, lo a lot of this won't, you won't have the context to understand what I'm talking about. Uh, reading here, um, I put in a, a uh, link from Deloitte. They did a, a nice job summarizing what's going on in the Senate Finance Committee. Whether any of this will ever be law, who knows? But here's what they're thinking about. And for those who it's subject to, again, these are, these are big money issues. Uh, a lot of the things going on in the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee, they're the result of large public companies writing in saying, you know, we're struggling with this issue. Either it's incomprehensible how it's written or, gee, did you really intend for us to pay an extra $10 million because of this technical quirk? Or can we fix it? There's uh, all of that going on. Many times uh, big law firms are hired there. They're talking, they're lobbying, trying to get their clients. Uh, and, and I don't begrudge it, right? If, if something is wrong or odd or unfair, uh, uh, that's what lobbyists are for. Okay. Uh, reading on a bit, uh, because they have uh, stated it very well here, uh, at a high level, many elements of the TRIO's framework, this is the TRIO of senators, uh, are familiar, reflecting what appears to be a growing Democrat consensus around perceived flaws in the international tax system put in place in 2017's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under the Trump administration. Many of the proposals were discussed by Democratic members and witnesses at the recent Finance Committee hearings focused on international tax policy, while others were laid out just last week by President Biden as revenue raisers to help finance his two trillion, trillion, trillion infrastructure initiative. Maybe we need two trillion of infrastructure, but um, uh, here, here's part of the way they think they're going to pay for it. The guilty tax, which is the global intangible low taxed income put those together, you get guilty. And it's a complete oxymoron. The guilty tax uh, does not only tax intangibles, and it does not only tax foreign corporate income in low tax jurisdictions. 
So it's it's a terrible, first of all, it's a terrible implication that if a U.S. company is doing business in a foreign jurisdiction, somehow it is guilty. Can you see the, the sniveling tax attorneys in some committee hearing putting this together saying, this, <laughs> we'll get them, we'll call this tax the guilty tax, they're guilty. And then it's not even correct because it taxes not just intangibles and it does not tax only uh, uh, foreign entities owned by U.S. companies in low-tax jurisdictions. So not only is the implication terrible, but the acronym is inaccurate. Okay, well, continuing on, that's what they decide to call it, so we're stuck of it, stuck on it. Uh, they want to increase the effective tax rate on guilty. Bad idea, bad idea. It already slows down outward outbound investment by U.S. companies, so let's increase the rate on that. But Again, that's a little bit political. They want to increase the effective rate on guilty income. The framework defers a decision on exactly what rate should be, stating that it is open to question whether the tax rate on guilty should equal the U.S. corporate rate, effectuating a fully worldwide international tax system, or still remain at a lower proportion of the U.S. rate. For example, 75% is proposed by President Biden. The point is, you want to give an incentive for U.S. companies to go do business in Germany and Iran and, uh, and China and everywhere. You want to be an incentivized people to go outbound. It's hard, really hard, to go into a foreign country and do business. There's customs. There's legal. You know, there, there, there's uh, work rules. There's, it's very, very difficult. And you want your, your country to have incentives. And I say this in terms of comparables, right? Absolutely, all over the European Union and all over Asians, they give their, their companies trying to go outbound and do business in the US, they give lots of incentives. So here we are, we impose the tax, we're arguing about the rate, and in fact, we wanna raise the rate. It is good to see that President Biden's administration at least is saying, no, we should keep it lower than is as if the income was earned in the US. Uh, the president's American jobs plan proposes to increase the guilty rate to 21% and the corporate tax rate to 28%. Widen of uh, Oregon, uh, 2011 tax reform plan, which he released uh, uh, with Republican Dan Coates of Indiana, called for a worldwide system for foreign earnings to be taxed at 100% of the corporate rate. In other words, no incentive to try to go and do business offshore. Bad idea, uh, but you, you be the judge. Requiring guilty to be calculated on a country-by-country country basis. I will go through that quickly because that's a very technical form-driven thing. But I, I should say, I'm old. <laughs> I remember the 1986 Tax Act. The 1986 Tax Act. And they said, you know, we got to get these oil companies they're, they're, if they have a lot of income in a high-tax country, they go over there and they create income through their various business dealings in a low-tax country, and then they can average the two together and they get a higher, they get a better uh, foreign tax credit because some of their income is at a lower rate, uh, lots of fractions, lots of uh, calculations, but I remember it like it was yesterday, working through what they called the buckets or the baskets. Country by country calculation, and then breaking up the income into different classifications. Uh, these were things 
I, I remember when my kids were young, I'd be in San Francisco at 11 o'clock at night doing country by country, classification by classification, calculations for a large public company. And so they said, well, it's such a great deal the way we did it with foreign tax credits. Let's now split guilty into buckets and baskets and country by country. So there you go. Somebody's figured out how to play with that on a spreadsheet. And I have told board of directors, this makes your, your break-even point on doing business overseas higher. I remember it like it was yesterday, excuse me, telling a board of directors that your break-even point is 10% of tax higher than your German competitor because this is the way the law is written and we have to file correctly. It's just a terrible sinking feeling why there isn't a uh, balanced, even playing field. Very again, again, very technical. Changing the formula for calculating guilty to eliminate the exclusion for 10% return on foreign tangible investments. Note, it's supposed to be the global intangible low-taxed income tax, but it has a 10% uh, deduction related to your tangible investments. So first of all, on its terms, it's... Uh, it's a contra it's a contrast right it, it's a it's a disconnect but this is the qbai calculation for those of you who have done it and it's one of the only good things in guilty to actually reduce your guilty tax uh, by assuming uh, uh, you you can take essentially a depreciation deduction for your hard assets that you're using overseas to do the business what could be more reasonable than that well Apparently not uh, their proposal to try to eliminate one of the only good things in the guilty rule. Uh, and, and for those of you who are in this level of rocket science, they give us the QBAI, which is a good guy, and they take away all net operating losses. There are no carrybacks. There are no foreign tax credits for withholding taxes. Those are hard cash costs, withholding taxes. Uh, I know I've lost many of you, but but uh, there's many things wrong with guilty, and I will leave this here to say, sounds like they want to make it worse. Okay, FDII. So uh, this is the foreign-derived intangible income, FDII regime. The framework suggests repealing the QBAI aspect in the TCJA's foreign-derived intangible uh, income regime, which, is, which it says penalizes companies that grow their footprint within the U.S. Uh, so uh, this is worth millions and millions and millions of dollars if you fall into this rule. But I'm going to move along because, again, that's uh, highly, highly technical. But if you are in FDII, give us a call. Give somebody a call. Make sure you understand it. You might want to do some lobbying to get the answer you want. The BEAT, the BEAT attacks, which is the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. Now, thank goodness. This only applies to very, very large companies. But the, um, the abuse was felt that uh, you could set up in the Netherlands Antilles and uh, uh, charge a royalty to the U.S. That royalty would be deductible in the U.S. And essentially, the, the, that income in the U.S. is stripped out of the U.S. tax system. It's base erosion, they called it. And then it's being taxed in the Netherlands Antilles. However, the beauty of it in the Netherlands Antilles, the corporate tax rate is zero, right? So what have you done? You've shifted high tax income into a low tax country. Yes, there's abuses on that. 
And I certainly, at first I'll say uh, guilty kind of uh, solved that problem. And uh, on top of it, for big companies, they have the beat tax and they are trying to say, well, now we're going to create two different sets of incremental tax rates. This is a, in addition to the tax you already pay. You pay a current 10% rate on beat income. Again, half an hour to go through it, but it's trying to avoid base erosion. They said now they're proposing the regular income tax would still be subject to the 10% rate within beat, while base erosion payments would be subject to a higher rate. So now we're going to set up two sets uh, of rates within BEAT. Again, thank gosh, uh, this affects very big companies. And uh, But if you're one of those, this, this, is, this is big money. And so I would encourage you to uh, uh, read these proposals, understand it, and again, hire a lobbying firm if you think they're going in the wrong direction. Uh, maybe you don't, and that's fine too. Okay, so just going through here. That is basically all we had to say for today. Uh, yes, I've covered all the bits. Again, remember, take no reliance uh, on anything you hear, hear in this podcast, unless you want to come in and become one of our clients. I'd be happy to talk to anyone on the phone. All of our contact information is in the show notes. And I got to get back to work. So thanks very much. Talk to you next week. <laughs>